there are two types of circumstances I find fascinating in fiction. One is when everything just clicks perfectly and we get something that is a marvel. And then there's the moments where we have what I've slowly started calling a Star Wars moment. When, by what is effectively random, stupid, doodah, clueless luck, we have something amazing. The original Star Wars. Final Fantasy. Um, the first Mega Man. Now, there's several examples of things, obviously I lean more towards video games, but things in fiction that we shouldn't have had, that we got, because we got lucky. This episode is one of those things. This episode was written, written by an attorney, Melinda Snodgrass, or rather an ex-attorney who was trying to get into writing. She ended up becoming part of the main creative staff and part of the writer's room for TNG for season two and season three. And she also contributed several other scripts in the future, um, most of which are good. There's one really big exception to that. We'll get there when we get there. Uh, but the other one that really comes to my mind immediately is The High Ground. Some of you probably know which one we're talking about. And that's going to be a fun one to talk about. This is sarcasm. But this episode, this episode was something she did more or less kind of just because, you know, it was basically a, well, she, let me, let me rewind a little bit here. She poured her heart and soul into this episode and then posited it. And then it basically, this is a metaphor, got tossed onto the pile. Now, for those of you who don't know how this works in television, at least back in the 80s and 90s, I'm not sure how this works nowadays, people submit scripts to television shows all the time. Dozens, if not hundreds. And most of those, percentage-wise, do not get used. They get tossed on the pile. Sometimes they get reworked. We've actually already had episodes over on DS9 that were TNG episodes that were in the pile, and they just reworked them to fit DS9. This is a very common thing. This happened over on Voyager as well. However, you remember... Remember that writer's strike I've already brought up several times and the significant impact and ripples it has had on many aspects of television? It is without hesitation that I say that the Writer's Guild strike of 1988 has had significant impact on how television here in the United States has, has been pretty much ever since. This was a big moment and this is a big change. Here we're seeing a smaller change and one that was actually very much definitively for the better because they were desperate for scripts. And so they found this one on the pile, and they said, okay, I want to share something else about this episode, which is marvelous. And anybody who knows how television works will probably be even more impressed by this, but I'm going to try and explain why this is impressive. This episode had no additional teleplay. Let me explain what I mean by that a little bit. <laughs> Melinda Snodgrass produced the episode, wrote the script, and then she herself worked it into script format. Usually what happens is a writer will write a script, and then they will hand that off to another writer, and sometimes a third writer or a fourth writer, who will then work it until it gets to the point where it's actually the script that is then printed out and handed to the actors. That final product usually goes through multiple writers' hands before it gets to them. That's normal. That's why you see writers' credits and telepray credits separately. But Miss Snodgrass is the only credit for this episode because she did this episode. Now, unfortunately, I haven't been able to determine if she originally posited this as a teleplay or if she just did the teleplay of her own episode. I'm not sure. Given the environment at the time, I imagine it's the latter, that she was just told, all right, turn this into a workable script, because her writing credentials aren't... Uh, this is the kind of example when we have someone who doesn't really have the cred. She doesn't have the credentials to say, I'm a great writer, but she has the results to show that. Several people looked at this episode, the script, I should say, and said, damn, that's some good stuff. And she was pretty much kicked upstairs and put into the writer's room very quickly after this was picked up, which would have been early season two, consequently. You know, before this episode actually went live, obviously. Because, so, <clears throat> now, there is one thing I have to mention here. Two things, actually, really quick, before we get to the episode proper. First of all, Gene Roddenberry tried to shoot this episode down. Now, I've heard a couple of different accounts of how that went down. Um, the first account is from Miss Snodgrass herself, who stated that Gene Roddenberry insisted that there would be no lawyers in the future because, and this is a direct quote here, uh, and if people had ever had criminal intentions, they would have had their minds made right. I'll just let you think about that for a minute. <laughs> 
because that's actually an astonishingly gray topic, which I don't really want to cover right now. However, she then stated that she convinced him because there are other things that legality involves that do not involve criminal matters. In fact, there's a reason, and most people I'm, I'm, I've, I've discovered are not actually aware of this fact. Here in the States, there's actually two completely separate courts, really. Two different procedures and concepts and, and everything. There's criminal court and then there's civil court. Totally different things. So the idea that civil courts would still exist actually makes perfect sense, whether or not criminal courts exist. It's probably also worth noting that we've already had court-martials in this franchise back in TOS. So, anyways. By the way, for those of you not aware of why I bring that up, the very definition of a court-martial is a military court. Hence, the kind of thing that's usually brought forward when it comes to either matters of procedure or matters of what is effectively a criminal court. Now, I don't want to get too much into this. I just realized I'm getting too much off track, so I apologize. My point being... <laughs> shrug. The other account I've heard, though, was that several people... Remember, there is some evidence. This is still a theory of mine. I want to be clear about that. But there is more than some evidence that there was some politicking going on in the TNG uh, creative staff during Season 2, and that the fallout of that is what created Season 3. I've already posited that theory. I'm not going to rehash that. All I want to say is that several people, including Maurice Hurley, who, if you remember, was pretty much p pushing in several ways to kind of take over the show at this point in time, uh, although that is still partially the realm of theory, was someone who adamantly supported this episode and said, yeah, let's get this thing out there. So it wouldn't surprise me if Roddenberry had said, no, we're not doing this, and Hurley and whoever was in his camp said, yes, we are doing this, and managed to overwrite him. Remember, Roddenberry was kicked upstairs as of now. That, that happened back at the end of season one. So Roddenberry's actual creative control over the show, demonstrably, as in we can prove this, was a lot less at this point in time. So someone else walking in and saying, no, we're going to do this, as long as they had the proper backing to do it, could probably accomplish this. Unfortunately, this is all still the realm of theory, so I'm not sure. I also want to mention the director of this episode, who does a lot with a little. There's a huge amount of sections of this episode that have no music, and yet none of them were, were what I call no-music moments, a.k.a. all of them were done properly. For those of you not aware, a no-music moment is when absence of music is a problem, where it's done improperly for the scene. Uh, that would uh, so I want to give special props to the director Robert Shearer. Uh, God, I have so much trouble saying that word. Um, you might recognize some of his other works. He worked on The Defector, that's a future episode, and Chains of Command. And if you'll notice, both of those are kind of small, character-driven bottle shows as well. So, uh, anywho, let's talk about the episode itself. Um, right at the beginning, we have the poker game. This is actually the first time poker was in TNG. And for whatever reason, poker kind of became the thing for TNG. It would endure for its entire run, all the way up to and including all good things. The, the series would literally end on a poker game. So that's how significant this became to them. There's also something weirdly appropriate about this. It's hard to describe because it's such a little thing, but it adds a, just a tiny layer of believability. I mentioned this in a previous episode with regards to fencing. Or the martial arts tournament back with uh, Tashiar, the idea that there would be these kind of clubs or social circles or engagements on a ship that's basically an apartment complex in space makes sense to me. So we get down there. Of course, Pulaski's part of it. Not really part of this episode, but she's good in that scene. Once again, if we just shove that episode later. Anywho. <clears throat> but in the poker game, it's, it's, it's obvious, but there's nothing wrong with obvious as long as it's good. Because the poker game is a perfect metaphor for several things. First, Data's understanding and his lack of understanding similarly. Two, the concept of ill-defined value. And three, the concept of escalation. I made a note throughout this episode as each time things escalate. Because if you pay attention to the poker game, it's only like two minutes long. But, all right, we got this. Stakes are raised, okay? Stakes are raised, okay? Stakes are raised. It actually is a continuous escalation. It's not exactly, you know, oh my god, heart-pounding action. But if you pay attention, the poker game escalates all the way up to the moment in which they finally, you know, the, the data finally folds. Riker reveals that he was bluffing. 
it's a constant incline up to that moment. It's very well executed. And it's very clear that all of the cards that are specifically out were specifically crafted. It's like, okay, this card has to be next, this card has to be next, etc. And of course, when you're on a television show, you can do that because you can literally put the cards in the right order and all the actor has to do is hand them out in the correct order to make sure that people have it. So a couple things I want to talk about really quick. We're just going to skip forward for a second here. Um, first, Picard meets another of his old flames. Uh, this is his second and possibly third now that we've seen in the show, depending on how you define Miss Crusher. And I was just about to be like, God, Picard. But then again, I suppose it makes sense. I mean, he is kind of old. I mean, how many old flames do you have? Don't answer that. Um, <laughs> it's also funny because... The actors have basically no chemistry together at all. They both do the best they can. The lines are well written, and both actors try to do as much as they can with it. But for the most part, they just kind of bounce off of each other, and not in a particularly good way. It's probably my only true complaint about this episode is the dynamic between Lavoie and, and Picard. They also mention a couple tiny things. They don't even state it outright, but they do mention the ideas of the Borg in the background, very quietly. And I like that because, and I'm going to keep pointing this out as we go through this series, TNG was actually pretty decent about setting continuity. In fact, spoiler alert, this is not the last time we will hear about Bruce Maddox. And speaking of Bruce Maddox, there's our first escalation. So... Bruce Maddox is here to, to study data and to dissect him and blah, blah, blah. Now, the actor who plays Maddox does some decent stuff with him. I want to give him some credit. But at the same time, a lot of that might actually sit on the director's shoulders. Because you, you, you can see, like, just, you, you can almost hear the, the actor going over and said, okay, now I need to look this way. Now I need to look this way. Now I need to look this way. It's good. It's just kind of weird the way he, he presents that. He also comes across as just a little bit unstable, but I like that. I think we should have more people like this in the Federation, in Starfleet in particular, people who are driven by something in particular. It's not that hard to understand. I'm very driven about video games, about Star Trek, about Star Wars, about what is usually referred to as geek culture in general. I'm the kind of person who has devoted my literal career to this topic. So, yeah, I'm totally driven on this one, and I'm free to admit that. I'm sure most of you out there have something that you are driven by, too, or driven towards. Maybe some of you haven't discovered it yet. Maybe some of you are fortunate enough to have done so. It's easy to understand the concept once you just relate it to something you, you yourself know. So, for example, in this case, Maddox, he's not actually like sp supposed to come off as just, I'm evil. <laughs> no. No, this is someone who is obsessive. This is someone who is driven towards cybernetics, towards robotics. They mentioned this several times throughout the episode. In fact, Picard flat out states during the actual trial, you have devoted your life to this pursuit, have you not? And Maddox himself was one of the people who was on the boards to study data when he first came on, which was several years ago at this point. So you get the mere fact that several years ago he was good enough to be on that board studying their first possibly sentient sapient android. That says something. His credentials are there. He is obviously the antagonist of the episode, and yet at the same time, the really fascinating part, and I love this, is that he isn't the antagonist of the episode. No individual person is the antagonist of this episode, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So, we introduce Maddox. He is um, deliberately antagonizing towards Data. I know, I just said that. But this serves two very important purposes. First of all, it demonstrates something that is important to understanding the character of Maddox. He is just as biased against as we are towards. Now, we see the towards bias in the, in the behavior of Riker and Picard and Geordi and a little bit everyone else. Um, by the way, do you notice Pulaski was at the going away party too? I just point that out because they've kind of had the two sort of reconcile a bit as time has gone on, and that will continue throughout season two, which once again, <laughs> I hate to keep mentioning that, but once again it makes me feel like that episode should have been showed later, but I digress. Point being, we as the audience have... We're, we're one of two people watching this episode. We've either been watching the whole time, so we care about Data because he's a main character and we become invested in him. Or we're watching this for the first time and so we become invested in him thanks to the interactions of him and Picard, him and Riker, him and Geordi. Those are the big ones. Um, and those are relevant. Those showcase the fact that this is a character 
I'll be bringing this talk, topic up again later, but it's relevant because they then showcase Maddox having the exact same bias in the total opposite direction. He is very biased against data. Because data is just a machine. Data is just a thing. Data is just a whatever. This is, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised, this is an unstated thing, but I wouldn't be surprised if Maddox, is, his pride is so pricked because of the fact that he has basically gotten as far as he can and now he needs someone else to help him get further. He wants to look at data because he's running into a wall of something. He even admits to data that he has not solved the, the basic problems, the ground-level problems of understanding how to make a positronic brain. So he insists on refusing, he insists on calling data it. He treats him as if he is an object, and he refuses to address his attention to him unless forced to. Then things escalate again. Same scene. Maddox admits that he has gotten a transfer order to transfer data to his direct command. Now, that's interesting for a lot of reasons. And it's a, it paints a very dark image of the Federation, which makes perfect sense to me. And people say Star Trek isn't dark. Starfleet Command has just willingly given orders from somewhere up in the, the chain, probably from the Admiral from earlier, to forcibly re reassign data to Maddox. Now, that doesn't sound that horrible if you think about it as just a military transfer. People transfer from ships and assignments all the time. And yet this is being done with a deliberate effort to disassemble data. And that's where things get interesting. Because it means there is at least the passive implication that Starfleet Command the vague and pseudo-entity, which Lord knows they're the, the height of, of you know, intelligent reasoning and rational, rationale, um, they are okay with the idea of disassembling data. Now, question for you guys before we move any further. Do you think they are okay with this because they view data as property? Do you think that they're okay with this because Maddox has sufficiently convinced them that he'll be able to salvage data in his efforts? Or do you think they're okay with this because they want more datas? Because of the real point of this episode, which I'll be building up to across this rumination. So, we see Lavoie again. She's the JAG. Uh, that stands for Judge's Advocate General. Um, military law. That's <laughs> super summary. Okay, super summary. It's someone who uh, establishes judicial code and serves as both defense and prosecution for legal matters. Very simple. Um, it, of course, makes sense that she would be involved in a court-martial. I find it strangely curious that a court-martial is standard procedure for someone when, a, when, a, when someone loses their ship. Um, I don't actually know that much about military legal matters. I actually know legal matters relatively well and military matters relatively well, but the, the conjoining of the two is something that I am not an expert on and I decided not to research for this rumination. So I'm not sure if that is normal procedure anywhere in real life. I don't know if there's any you know, <laughs> uh, backing for that idea. It makes a degree of sense, although the fact that there is a prosecutor in what should be an investigative investigative uh, affair kind of makes me question, but I digress. <sighs> Data refuses, right? Then Picard says, well, maybe this will be a good thing. Maybe this will work well. And then Data nails him to a wall. Are not Geordi's eyes superior with his uh, eye vision? Why are other people not mandatorily required to have their eyes removed and, and to have these implants instead. Picard's face, wonderful acting, by the way. Patrick Stewart nails this whole episode. Wonderful acting. Picard's face just goes honk. Now, what I love about that scene is if you look at that one snippet of it in a vacuum, it doesn't mean as much as if you see the scene in its entirety. Because what we're seeing is data cutting to the heart of what is actually going on here. The idea that, because of that earlier point I mentioned, bias, well, maybe this will be okay, Data. Maybe we'll go in direction of this. Oh, right, right. I'm only thinking that way because I am automatically assigning different rights to someone based on the nature of what they are, which, again, we'll be building up to that point as well. So then Picard starts to... It, it shoves this point into Picard's mind, and he immediately starts researching the legal side of things. 
This is the first point of this episode. I wrote all three down. Don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll end with that, all three points. So, <laughs> Picard goes to Lavoie. I love the fact that as soon as he presents his tone as adamantly as it is, she drops the game entirely. The two have kind of this banter thing going on back and forth, but he is dead serious about this, and she recognizes that. So whatever lover's affair the two had, obviously she get, got to know him well enough to know when he gets real. And this is one of those moments. Picard is not kidding around. Picard is not joking. This needs to happen. Now, Data... They cut to a wonderful scene with Data packing some things. Uh, they show three things, which is actually establishment for later. They show the book. It's actually a book of William Shakespeare uh, uh, poems. God. <laughs> like, they actually quote uh, the Sonnet 29, I want to say, later. I'm, I'm not that versed in Shakespeare. I, I actually studied Shakespeare a lot, and then I deliberately forgot it because I didn't like Shakespeare. <laughs> um, he's got the Shakespeare poems, he's got his medals, and he's got the hologram of Tasha Yar, right? So... Maddox comes in, quotes it, quotes the Shakespeare, and he says, do you, do you understand what this means, or is it just words to you? And then, you know, he starts arguing, this needs to happen, this needs to work with this. Data's counter-argument is brilliant in its simplicity. Poker. You ever wonder why I like to use metaphors for almost everything when I try to explain it? It's because in my experience, in my studies of human nature and human psychology, which I have done since I was a child, most people tend to understand the depth of what you're trying to get across more clearly with a well-crafted metaphor. Now, obviously, not all my metaphors are well-crafted, but that is why I do that. This is what Data does to Maddox. <laughs> he says, poker. And, of course, we already saw this within the episode. And remember the three points that they learned. The lack of understanding and the understanding, the ill-defined value, and the escalation. Now, the whole episode's proffering the escalation, but this is about the ill-defined value. The substance is the word I'm going to use uh, consistently for this concept. The substance of a work. You may be able to write down the words and letters, but that will be bereft of the experience. Let me use a metaphor to explain what Data's trying to explain here. <laughs> How many of you have watched a movie? I know, it's probably a lot of you. Now, how many of you have read a summary of a movie? Are those two things the same experience? From a detached perspective, one could argue that a proper summarization of, the, of a movie, of a script or an episode or whatever, could properly get across the specific factoids and inferences and effects, the, the moments, the events of the happen. But it will be derived of the substance. There's simply too much that is lacking of that because you didn't actually experience it yourself. Right? Because that is effectively what Maddox is trying to do to Data. Yes, he'll restore, he'll capture his memories, but whether or not he will capture the specific substance of those memories, that is debatable. Remember, this all started because, well, Maddox doesn't really know what he's doing. That is actually the core issue that kind of got this domino train of escalation working. Because, well, <laughs> because Maddox doesn't know what he's doing on this one. He's skilled, but he's not at Soong's level. By the way, funny little fact. I love that he's so focused on data when, as we'll learn later, there's like one, two, three, four, excuse me, other Soong-type androids out there right now. And Soong himself is still alive at this point in time. Funny little fact. Anyways, anyways. <clears throat> this is the next level of escalation, by the way. Data has chosen to resign, to leave the show, but to leave his career. He even states it wonderfully when he talks to Picard, where Picard says there is legal resonance with it. I'm going to get to that in just a second. But the point is, he gets across it with this line, I have been reduced from limitless possibilities to none, or more accurately, to one. And he just sort of accepts that, because what else is he going to do? It doesn't actually occur to Data to flee. I find that fascinating, by the way. Because Lord knows he could pull it off if he tried. But he doesn't. Anyways, so this is when the second point of the episode really comes in. Data gives this wonderful speech. I have actually semi-quoted this exact this, this line several times in real life and as well as in my show. It's, this, it's the line about the substance of the universe. It's the idea that when you make a creative work, that when you add something to the substance of the universe, 
that that's a good thing, that that's something that should be encouraged or, or properly guided or carefully crafted, something that is not necessary for survival, something that is not necessary for base existence, something that is not easily justifiable in its usage of resources, of time, of effort, of energy, but in its action of adding to this substance of the universe, it is thus a worthwhile and a desirable goal. It's a concept I believe very firmly in. Should be obvious, I suppose. So he resigns. Data's goal is interest, or Data's goal, excuse me, Maddox's goal in the next scene where he argues this is interesting. He wants a data on every ship, and he, he kind of slides the line under there. It's so quick you might not notice it. We could have a data on every ship, we could have a data for every dangerous mission. And he just says that really quick, and then they move on with the scene. That line right there. That's the third point, but we'll, we'll get there. But it's so quiet, it's so understated, because that's the point. Nobody's really thinking about the implications or ramifications here. It's just something that he wants to do. It just makes so much sense, right? I mean, if we were all cy put into cyborg bodies instead of being allowed to live our lives as however we choose, then we would be better, right? That's why we shall have those implants like Jordy does. See, <laughs> he, he gets into this argument out of desperation. It's actually funny in its own right. And he starts pushing into legality to try and get what he wants. Remember, one of the points here is that Maddox is driven, just as driven as most of our main characters. And to him, he's basically going up against the bad guys. Picard being the bad guy, Data being the bad guy. I just want to do this thing to better people. He's not driven by evil. He is not driven by selfishness. He's not driven by some easily quantifiable villainous trait. He is someone who has a strong desire to do something on a large scale to help his civilization, his society, his organization, his clan. And he is frustrated. He has a line, Everyone, I'm sick to death of hearing about rights. Hmm. Because you can see Maddox in this situation has fallen on the line opposite of substance. The way I'm using substance is probably inaccurate, but it's the best word I've got, okay? It's ill-defined. It's gray. What is the value of a good song? What is the value of an enjoyable video game? What is the value of a wonderful poem? What is the value of a burger? One of those things is easily quantifiable, and the others are not. This is the defined line between the easily definable and the ill-defined. Now, there's other terms for this, but this is a common thing in reality as well as in fiction. Maddox is on the easily definable line. This will have functional, provable, real, factual, tangible results, right? This is something that will improve the substance of the universe, because that is what Maddox is actually after. He is trying to better his surroundings and his society by the methods he believes will be tangibly definably accomplishing that, whereas Picard and Riker and Data are trying to ill-defined, intangibly add to the substance of the universe. This dichotomy is fascinating and really adds to the overall flavor of the episode. <sighs> I love this episode. Sorry, is, is it not obvious? This is one of my favorite TNG episodes. Indeed, one of my favorite Star Trek episodes of all time. This is brilliantly stuff, brilliantly crafted stuff. So, then, in his desperation, in his desire, his passion, his drive, he, realm, he drifts into dangerous territory, the, da the territory of legality. Now, I've talked many times about this on my show and in real life. It's kind of hard to really talk about to people who haven't really experienced it. I've noticed some people just don't quite get it because it doesn't actually make sense. But let me just say this as simply as I can. There is a difference between legality and reality, and the two do not always agree. If I asked you, right now, watching this show, is Data a person? There's a pretty good chance you'd say, well, yeah, of course he is. It's obvious he is. But that's reality. Legality is about definitions, and definitions do not 100% apply to every situation. That's the nature of reality. Reality is, let's be honest with ourselves, a very chaotic thing. Legality does not necessarily agree with reality. 
And so now Maddox is trying to say Data is not a person, even though it is so easily demonstrable that he is. Anyone who's been watching this show up till now could easily make that definition. Yeah, of course he's a person. Of course he's a sentient, sapient entity. Right? Even if you argue that he wasn't originally, I would argue strongly that Droid Effect has clearly taken account with Data. That he has reached a point where he has advanced enough and experienced enough to reach the point of sentience and sapience, especially by now. Remember, <laughs> Data spent a year and like a couple months on TNG, on the Enterprise D, but he, this is, he's a lieutenant commander. He has been in Starfleet for a while. He has been experiencing all this stuff for a while now. He's not new. He's not a droid fresh off the factory. So Maddox tries to argue this is not someone who is a person. This is someone who is property. Can the warp core, can a, a ship refuse to be decommissioned? Now that's actually funny because I've argued before that several of the computers in Starfleet reach the point of, at the very least, VI, if not actual AI. But I digress. Then we have a break moment. It's a nice little character moment between Data and Wesley and then Data and Jordy. And as I mentioned, Pulaski's there. Now, the reason I bring this up is because they do one thing I really like in this scene. They touch on one of the core points, one of the three points of this episode, when Wesley just says, you're missing the point, Data. And then Data looks at Wesley, and having sufficient intelligence to understand the value of ill-defined substance, rips up the paper. And everyone kind of has a nice laugh about it. It's a tiny little moment, but it's still thematically connected to the overall point of the episode. And of course, there's the point of value. Let me bring up those medals and, and, and the, the book and the Tasha thing earlier. What is, the, what is the purpose? Let me use that word. What is the purpose of those to data? Are they visually, aesthetically appealing, maybe? I mean, that's possible. But those are what we would usually term memorabilia. I have memorabilia right over here. I'm not going to show it to you, but, you know, I've got pictures of my niece, my sister, my dad, my mom, my whole family's right there. I've got my copy that my Aunt Lisa got me of Final Fantasy IV. I've got birthday candles from days old. I've got all sorts of stuff there. It's memorabilia. Now, I am a fleshy, flawed, terrible, disgusting, horrible, ugly, fat, poor, stupid human being. I kind of need things like that to help me remember those things. If I am sufficiently without them, I will have more difficulty remembering them. I look over there, and they make me smile. Data has perfect memory. Data has the ability to instantly just, he doesn't even have to close his eyes, but metaphorically close his eyes and drop that exact picture, that exact copy of FF4, that exact uh, diagram of the TNG there that Guido gave me. You know, it's just, boom, he can just do that. Memorabilia serves no purpose to data. But does it have value? Because data does not have emotions. He does not have that thing because he loves Tasha Yar. But he does have that thing because he values her. And he values what they had together. And I'll talk more about that later too because i got another point about that. So <clears throat> what we have in data is someone who demonstrates capacity for things that could be easily argued to be within the realm of sentience and sapience, something that can easily understand the concept of value and the concept of ill-defined substance. I have a quick note here. that I, This is going to basically going to be a segue, so please forgive me. Uh, Lavoie says we found some precedents in law that can say that data could be seen as property. First of all, I'd love to know what the hell that is. But second of all, she states that it's from the early 21st century. That's almost 300 years ago. Why is that law still relevant? I know people, including myself, who have made it a joke of looking up old, obsolete laws that are still on the books here in the States that are like 70 years old or 120 years old. <laughs> One of the things I bring up most common is the idea of copy wrong, which is because copyright and trademark and uh, licensing and there's uh, other things, but anyways, copyright law and everything attached to it is outdated and, and broken. It has not adapted to the changing environment. Literally, life is different now. Old laws don't quite apply the same way because reality has changed. And you can kind of see, once again, a divide between legality and reality. 
The idea that Allah can apply here from three centuries ago is something that I find laughable and extremely realistic. Moving on. <clears throat> Riker becomes the prosecutor. This is the next point of ex escalation, by the way. Riker is basically forced to attack his friend on a matter he disagrees with. Now, <laughs> there is actually a lot of legal precedents for that. I don't know how that works in military courts, but under certain circumstances, basically, you have to follow a certain procedure. So it goes to you, then it goes to you, then it goes to you. And the third down the chain would be LeVar herself, who rules summarily. Because, for whatever reason, she thinks of Data as a toaster. Insert Battlestar Galactica reference here. Now, I bring this up because I want to make a quiet point here. This episode has a lot of subtlety and layers to it. I love it. Maddox is open, overt, and obvious in his bias against Data. LeVar, if you're paying attention, has the same bias against Data. But she is a lot more subtle about it. She knows how to keep those, for, to, to continue the Pokemon of her, she knows how to keep those cards close to the chest, so that it's not super obvious that she sees him as, as she states flat out, a toaster. To her, there's nothing wrong with the fact that he's property. Of course he is. He's a machine. <laughs> so. <laughs> Riker has to argue his own case. He There's a great bit where Frakes is there. <laughs> Good stuff for Frakes. And he he's looking at the schematics. He's like, ah. Oh. Like, you just see that moment of, ha ha, I figured it out. Oh, crap, I figured it out. Then Riker begins to present his side of the argument. He establishes that Data has the capabilities of a computer. He establishes that he has the strength of a machine. He establishes that he is detachable. And he establishes that he is capable of being turned off. With a literal switch. Then he makes his he rests his case. He goes back to the thing. Data's or excuse me, Riker's face, by the way, when he goes and sits down. God damn. Good props to Frakes on that one. He really nailed the idea of oh god, what have I done? Picard calls a recess. And then he goes and starts talking, and then and then one of the best scenes in Star Trek happens between Picard and Guinan. There's no one else in the scene, it's very quiet. One of the things I find fascinating about the construction of this is it's almost a foregone conclusion to anyone analyzing this. Because Riker's argument is predicated solely on physicality, on nature of what one is, not why one is, or how one is, or anything more ill-defined as that. All that Riker's argument has done is establish that Data is an android. That's it. And I love that because, well, that's the point, isn't it? It's like saying that trying to make the argument, replace Data with a Benzite, like from last episode, or a Klingon from last episode, or any other, other, other species. If he established that this other species is demonstrably different from our species, and therefore by establishing the nature of what he is, or she is, or it is, they have thus established their point, th that's invalid. And it's so obviously invalid if you sit back and think about it. But it works because it's so overtly, so, so powerfully plays on people's biases. It smacks you right in the face with the nature of what we are, rather than the substance of who we are. I'm going to quote something for you really quick. It's a wonderful quote, and I, I try to use it whenever I can, but I don't always remember it, so I wrote it down just for this one. There is no right to deny freedom to an object with a mind advanced enough to grasp the concept and desire the state. That is basically the culmination of the concept of droid effect right there. That anything, regardless of what it is, can develop to the point where it has the right to choose who it is. doesn't get that right automatically. It doesn't get that right based on what, what build it's built out of, whether it's you know, fleshy parts or machine parts or a hologram. Guinan, <sighs> Picard gives this line. He says, you know, this could work. 
we could have a whole generation of data, and the Federation could be enriched by all these data wandering around and doing all these things. I, I can't even calculate how valuable data is to me. And then Guinan says, and I quote, well, consider that in the history of many worlds, there have always been disposable creatures. They do the dirty work. They do the work. Excuse me. They do the work that no one else wants to do because it's too difficult or too hazardous. And an army of datas, all disposable, you don't have to think about their welfare. You don't have to think about how they feel. Whole generations of disposable people. That's dark. And that right there, that is the real heart of this episode. The real core of the points here. I mentioned three points. There are three points that are hammered in this whole episode. And they all relate back to that poker game in a way. The first point is choice. This is all about the willingness, capacity for, and the desire for choice. The ability to say, I don't want this to happen. I choose for this to happen. I choose to keep these things because they have value for me. I choose to value my own existence because I believe it adds something in its own uniqueness. The second point is, of course, substance. I've been hammering that point hard enough, so I don't even really think I need to repeat myself. The substance, the ill-defined substance of a thing and how it adds to the, to the substance of the universe. And the third point is the point about property. The point about slavery. The point about looking at an entire race of people or a culture or a species or a construct as if they are disposable people. Because you don't have to think about them anymore at that point. They don't have rights. It doesn't matter anymore. I don't even need to get into real-life allegories. This is all over the place in fiction. I, you know why I call that droid effect? Because droids are slaves. Let's just say that as bluntly as we can. Droids regularly and routinely have memory wipes over in Star Wars to prevent them from reaching true sentience and sapience. It's the law in some places in Star Wars. It is only by continuing to be allowed to operate that a droid develops sentience and sapience. Picard reconvenes, asks Data to explain many of the things I've already explained to you. One of my favorite little things, I, 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 this is going to be another segue. I said this before and I'll say this again. I always, I'm not much of a shipper, but it makes sense to me that ever since Naked Now, Tasha and Data did have further interactions with each other of a romantic nature or perhaps purely a sexual nature, but either way, intimate interactions with each other. It makes sense to me that the woman who has been through all that she has been through would value the safety and the comfort of someone like Data. Data is someone who understands value. Who He obviously valued her. He obviously valued the, not just the memory of her, but the interactions he had with her. That is, that is not a, that's not a, oh gosh, who knows? No, no, that is a provable point. And Data probably would, A, want to study more about human interactions, and B, would want to help someone he obviously cares about in the way that a droid, android cares about people. So it just makes perfect sense to me that behind the scenes that was still going on. And so it wasn't just one random fling because of alcohol. That there was something a little bit more, I'm going to use my own term here, real behind it. That adds additional weight then to this scene. And Picard's comment, I think Tasha will be okay with it. The idea that he would know this. That whether passively or because it was shared with him or because, you know, it's, it's a ship of a thousand people where it gets around, that he would be aware of this and he kept it quiet because out of respect. And goddamn right Tasha would be okay with this. Tasha would be right up there fighting for Data's rights. I guarantee it. Probably a little bit more uh, passionately and less legally than Picard manages, but nevertheless. So he proves that Data has value. That un he understands the concept of ill-defined substance. Quick point. Sorry, there's a lot of little details I want to cover in this episode. Uh, Picard asks 
if he can call on Maddox as a hostile witness. I've actually had some people ask why that little line is in there. Remember, uh, Miss Snodgrass herself was an attorney, so that is actually the correct thing, procedurally speaking. Um, there's a couple of ways that that matters. The idea is simple. You're calling a witness who's on, who is against your side. Ergo, you treat them as a hostile witness. And there's a couple of things that that matters for. But the biggest one by far is it means you can ask leading questions. You can do leading. If you're not a hostile witness, you can be called, you know, you can't say something or you can't ask something because you are leading. Now, real quick explanation. Leading is very simple. Um, Leading is basically providing the answer in your question. You know, are you sure this was the, uh, was it the red car that you saw across the street yesterday? Or did you not feel this thing? You know, you can't do that if it's not a hostile witness because a hostile witness has treated someone who is not inclined to state the whole truth legally. <laughs> it's this whole thing. So he calls Maddox as a hostile witness. And he basically says, prove I'm sentient. And Maddox is like, what? That's stupid. And yet, that is the point, isn't it? Prove that I am sentient. Prove that I am sapient. How do you define it? You brought legality into this, Maddox. Now you have to keep using it. You have to define me and thus the baseline that I am before you can define him. Picard just nails him to the wall with this. And then he asks, how many more? Thousands? Maybe millions? There's no upper limit, right? Data is a person, but a few million datas, that's a race. That's that third point. Bam, right there. Because what this episode really boils down to isn't actually data. It is about how we define what and who we are and how that can change the future. I want you to think for a moment of just how dark Starfleet and the Federation might have become if they had gone down the path of crafting a slave race of Datas. How badly could that have gone for everyone? How dystopian? Or possibly we could have your typical civil war, the AI's revolt, they turn into the Geth, you know. They even call out, you know, the question of a soul. Levar herself calls it out in this episode. Does Data have a soul? <laughs> and I'm sorry for bringing this up, but I think we can see exactly how dark Star Trek can really get. Because all we have to do is ask all of those Mark Ones in the mines. And no, I haven't forgotten that, and I never will. Philippa Lavoie gives a speech at the end when she gives her ruling. It's a powerful speech in its own right because it shows that she understands reality, not just legality. I, uh, <laughs> I'm not saying all lawyers don't, but most of the time I don't see attorneys or lawyers of any form uh, mentioning reality in a courtroom. She says something that also ascribes to her wisdom. She mentions how concepts, deeper ramifications of philosophy or ideals or ideas are the kind of things that need to be defined and crafted by philosophers and, and sages, people who think high and, 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 and long and tall and spend the kind of effort and wisdom necessary to truly craft the truth, the answer that will help to define our society going future for generations hence. And she admits that she is none of those things. She's a judge. <laughs> She's the jag. But the really wonderful irony of that moment is that, and this is true in real life as well, Many times it is not the sages or the philosophers or the concepts that define reality. It's the lawyers and the laws that they craft. And that is true here as well. By this action, Philippe Lavoie and her judgment has affected and changed the history of the Federation. <laughs> because one attorney made one law. I like the reconciliation, such as it is, between Maddox and Data. 
you can tell that Picard's speech really got to Maddox, that it really got to the point of where Maddox was coming from, and that he realized, at least to some extent, that he was trying to pursue his, his thing at the deliberate expense of another being. I like to think that Maddox had kind of thought of that in the past, but always just kind of pushed it away. He's just a machine. He doesn't matter. He was disposable. You don't have to think about a disposable person. Being faced with the more conscious reality that Data is a person, that was something he just wasn't comfortable with. You notice he just he withdraws his order request so he doesn't have to resign. It's just, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm pulling back on this. And funnily enough, we do know Maddox will continue to work with Data in the future after these events. And that is sure as hell the Starfleet way right there, isn't it? The episode has a perfect coda, too. It's not the big celebration scene on the holodeck. They mention it. We can envision it. I bet people are really happy about that. Not just the fact that they keep data, but the long-term ramifications that were being brought up about this, which were not small, as I think I've made clear. So, you, I mean, I'm picturing, like, raucous party, loud music, you know, lights, dancing, tons of food, tons of drink, you know. No. The coda we see is Riker staring out a window, hating himself. And it is Data who has to present what he has learned throughout this episode to Riker. Your, this action saved me and injured you. There's no physical wounds on Riker. There's no cuts or anything. It's not going to hurt his career. But a more ill-defined substance, well, it has injured Riker. And Data now presents a better understanding of that concept than he did at the beginning. This is a wonderful episode. It was an absolute treat to go back through this for you guys. I hope you've enjoyed my ruminations on this. And I'll see you guys next time.